Welcome to Grace, everyone. If I haven't got to uh, meet you yet, my name's uh, Jeff, and uh, thanks for spending the, the weekend, part of your weekend here with us. Uh, let me just remind you, as um, seats are filled in here and in the cafe and on the floor in the back of Saturday night services, 5 and 6.45, uh, Jesus will love you more if you come to church on Saturday night. He told me that personally in an email. And so <laughs> that's kind of true. And, um, and for everyone who comes to Saturday nights, we're offering a, a, a rainbow. You will have a rainbow if you come on Saturday nights. So uh, think about doing that, shifting your schedule a little bit. Uh, there's, lo- there's plenty of seats, not lots, but plenty of seats, plenty of parking. And uh, love to have you there. It's an identical service, so it'll feel exactly the same, except Jesus will love you more, so it'll feel better, and you have a rainbow. And um, we'd love for you to do that. You'll free some seats up for some other folks. Let me also remind you that in seven more weeks, seven, seven more weeks, uh, the extension will open. And so we will be adding two more services on Sunday morning. So we'll go from two to four. And I think that's going to alleviate uh, all, if not most, or if not all of our space problems. So uh, hold out for that as well and keep your eye on that, okay? So we'd love to have you. Thanks for being here and squeezing in a little bit. We're in a series right now called The Grown-Up, and uh, in The Grown-Up, what we're talking about is uh, family relationships. It's kind of the platform, really all relationships, but family is what we're uh, using kind of as examples the most and asking the question, can I be a catalyst for change in my family? What would that look like? And we've said that when you look at the Bible, the Bible does not give a secret formula for a perfect family. It's, it's not in there. Somebody tells you it is, they're just trying to sell you a book, they're lying to you. So it's not in there. What the Bible teaches is this. The Bible teaches that we should respond to Christ. And as I respond to Christ, <clears throat> he will renew my mind or change the way I think. He will transform my heart. He'll change what motivates me. And then as I am changed by Christ, that will reflect out and to the relationships around me, and that is the catalyst for change. And so I can kind of volunteer for that. I can, uh, <clears throat> I can look at God and say, hey, I would, I would love to be used by you to be a, an agent of change in my family. Would you interact with me, show me what to do, and, uh, and I, I would love to be used in that way. So there's no secret formula. Every relationship in a family is different, so there's no uh, homogenized way to like, just approach family. But there is a, the all, an all-powerful God who loves you and loves the people around you who can help you and who can, uh, who can change you. We have said, though, that there are three constants in every family. There, there's three things that every family has in common, every person has in common within a family. Uh, number one is you can't pick your family. It's picked for you. And so you can look at God and say, why did you stick me with these people? And he'll never really answer that question for you. Uh, So you can resent that, or you can look and say, God, you did bring these people, whether it's biological, it's marriage, divorce, adoption, whatever. However your family came to be is ultimately uh, in God's design. And so he's decided to have these families around you. So you can resent it or embrace it. And we said the second truth kind of goes with that one is every family looks outside of their family and thinks somebody else's family is better than theirs. And that's just normal, right? Every every husband looks at another wife, every wife looks at another husband and just says, man, they they do that right, we don't do that right. Parents look at uh, other children and think, man, they got better kids than we got. That's right, kids. Sometimes your parents are like, I wish I had other kids, right? So that happens 
all the time. I get the emails about it. And so that happens. Kids look at parents like, man, their mom's better than my mom, right? And so that, that's a very normal thing. That's just our human nature. It's not the end of the world, but there's a danger attached to it. And the danger is this, that when I start daydreaming about what I don't have, I quit investing in what I do have. When I start daydreaming about what I don't have, I quit investing in what I do have. And so put the two together, if God arranged this for me, I, he brought these people in my life so I could be a, what the Bible calls a minister of reconciliation or so I could be a change agent, then it, if I invested myself in that way, if I quit daydreaming and just said, you know what, the best marriage I'm ever going to have is the one I've got right now. Or the best parents I'm ever going to have are the ones that God gave me. If I invested myself differently, could those, could those relationships alter then? And then the third truth, and this is the one we're really building the series off of, is every family's got a leader. Every family's got a leader. There is somebody in every family that when that person walks into the, the family gathering, the family gathering yields to that person. Every family's got a leader. And that can be really positive. It can be a, a, an amazing mom. It can be an incredible dad. And it can be negative. It can be the crazy sister who showed up, right? It can be the five-year-old throwing a tantrum. But somebody is setting the pace for that family. And that's where we can volunteer. We can look and say, God, you put me in these relationships. You put me here for a reason. Uh, I volunteer. And I would love to be the, uh, someone used by you to bring change to this family dynamic, and we call that the grown-up. The grown-up is the life giver. The grown-up is the one who brings kind of God's paradigm to the family scenario, and God, would you, could you use me in that way, right? So last weekend, we talked about this more, and we said there's a question, there's a life-giving question. Much of you have been telling me that you've been using this question. It works, doesn't it? I'm telling you, it works. And so the question was this. When I look at someone else, any human being, I look at them and I say to them, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? It is a life-giving question. It changes the dynamic. Somebody was telling me about a fight they were having with their spouse. And she was like, how can I serve you? And she's like, it worked. I'm like, I told you. It's like your secret weapon, right? How can I serve you? And we said, that's, that's the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter two, it's the mind of Christ. It, it's what he does for us, and it changes the family dynamic because I'm not looking to take, I'm looking to invest, and that's a question a grown-up would ask. It's a life-giving, grown-up, mind of Christ kind of a question. So this week, what I want to do, if, if you want to catch all those details, go out online, graceohio.org, and you can watch those conversations or listen to them. Uh, sign up for a podcast for free through iTunes. It'll just come to your phone every week, um, and you can get that. But I want to advance the conversation here this weekend, and I want to build the, the, this weekend's conversation off of last week's conversation. So what we're really going to try to do is I'm going to, I'm going to show you how to put skin on in very tangible ways this how can I serve you question. And the reason that how can I serve you question, there's a reason that question is so powerful. There's a reason that question is a, is a game changer, and it's because it addresses a, a basic human need. And I'll show you what that is here in a minute. But when you ask that question, it kind of cuts through all the noise and it gets down to that human need. And when, when, you, when you tap into that human need this, that I'm going to tell you about, it, it, it alters relationships because someone will quit fighting against you and they'll start to feel like you're alleviating that need or helping them in that need and it, it alters 
your relationships. So let me show you where that comes from in the Bible. Grab your Bibles if you got them. Go to Philippians chapter two. If you don't have a Bible or something in the chairs, it's page 819. And if you're electronic, we use the, um, the version app, Y-O-U version. You can download that or hit live and our zip code is 44333. Out in the cafe, uh, if there some Bibles in the chairs or there will be some back at the information desk if you want a physical Bible. If you're electronic, you can just use the app. Right in Philippians chapter two is where we're at. Verse three, this is where we kind of ended last weekend. Verse three, chapter two, Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is picking up on Jesus here and he's saying, hey, listen, we need to have his mindset. In the next few verses, explain his mindset. What was it? Well, he being very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself and was obedient even to the cross. So Jesus's nature, his mindset, is to serve, right? And so Paul says, grab that mindset. When Christ looked at you and me, he looked at us in in these very isolated relationships in which we're isolated from him. We cannot get to God. Jesus knew that those relationships, that our relationship with him was kind of a a death-giving relationship. It wasn't a life-giving relationship. And so he came to us. He looked at us in essence and said, how can I serve you to change the relational dynamic, and he humbled himself. Ultimately, that led to the cross. So Paul says, do that with each other. Consider others above yourself. That's what Christ did. There wasn't a real upside to him dying on the cross for him. It's all for us. And value others above yourself, right? And in your relationships, have this mindset. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so we talked about that in depth. We said selfish ambition is the idea of rivalry, right? That's, that's how, our, how our modern minds would think of it. Do nothing out of rivalry. So when you're in a rivalry with someone, you're not, you're not defending a truth. There's no moral right, moral wrong. It's all opinion, right? So Ohio State is better than Michigan. There's a rivalry, right? That's my opinion, Happens to also be God's opinion, but it's my opinion, right? So there's a rivalry, but it doesn't actually matter if Ohio State wins or not, right? There's nothing really gained. There's not a moral right, moral wrong. It's just opinion. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit just means empty glory. So when Ohio State wins, which they have not in the last 11 years, but when they win, right, then what I get for myself is I get empty glory. I get bragging rights. I I didn't defend the truth. I didn't protect a widow or an orphan. I I just got bragging rights. So Paul says, don't let that drive your relationships. Instead, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I take the best of me and give it to you? This is what Christ did, okay? So that question is huge. And, and it's, a, it's a, a life-giving question. Like I said, we dug into it a lot last week, so you can go and, and uh, look at it if you want. But I wanna take that and I wanna put skin on it this weekend 
And I want to ask that question in a couple of specific ways. If I am the surrogate grown-up, that's what I'm calling it. So if I'm looking at people who need me, and I'm just, I'm in these relationships. I'm not the dad, I'm not the mom. I'm just in these relationships. I'm the big brother, I'm the cousin, I'm the teacher, I'm the coach, right? I'm a single parent. It's not what, it, not what it's supposed to be, quote unquote, but it is what it is. God gave me who he gave me. How can I minister to or how can I serve? What am I supposed to do? And, and why is that how can I serve you question so powerful? Why does it make such a difference, okay? Let me explain that and then I'll tell you what to do. The reason that the how can I serve you question is so powerful is because it, it meets a basic human need, and the human need that it meets is what we call, what I call, aloneness, aloneness. That when someone is suffering or going through or feeling aloneness, the how can I serve you question cuts through all the noise and gets into the heart of what's going on in that person. Now, let's talk about this for a second. There's a difference between being lonely and aloneness, between being lonely and being alone. So we all have loneliness, right? Loneliness is an emotion that goes away when you get around people. It's pretty simple to solve, right? So we'll feel lonely sometimes. I didn't get invited to the party and I feel lonely because of that. I was gonna ask this one girl to prom and somebody else beat me to it. And so I feel lonely because of it. Um, you know, my friends are doing that and I didn't get invited. I'm just describing my high school experience is all that's happening right now. So I feel lonely. But the thing with lon being lonely is you can just shift it, right? So I, I didn't get invited to that party. I'm going to go to another party or have my own. I'm going to get people around me. Uh, this girl is going to prom with somebody else, but I like, got like a line of women waiting to go to prom with me. So I'll just make a phone call. You know, that was true, right? And so, right, so there, you just kind of solve it quickly. That's loneliness. Aloneness is very different. Aloneness, I define it this way. I wrote, I wrote this in my notes. Aloneness, when, when you're struggling with aloneness, there are lonely feelings, but they, can, they come and go. They're pretty simple. But when you're struggling with aloneness, there is inherently a real or a perceived lack of access to relationships that alleviate my alone condition. There is inherently a real or perceived lack of access to relationships that alleviate the condition of being alone. So, for instance, I found that in over 20 years of being a pastor, when I talk, for instance, to a single parent, what they will tell me, they won't use this word, but what they will say to me is they will say, I'm alone, I'm alone. They're not incompetent, they're not weak, they're not dumb, they're just alone. They look and say, there's, it's supposed to be a two-parent setup. I mean, that's the ideal, right? But I don't have that. My husband left me or my wife, you know, wigged out and she's gone. So I'm alone. So I'm trying to provide for the children. I'm trying to nurture the children. I'm trying to educate the children. I'm trying to get them in healthy places. And I'm all by myself and there's no access to that relationship. That condition is not going to change anytime soon. I feel, I feel alone, I feel the burden of being alone in this scenario. It's fascinating when you talk to, their, to children, they will tell you that too. They, they won't use the word, they'll just describe it. 
they, they can identify the missing relationship, right? So, so you'll say, uh, what's going on, Billy? And it's like, eh, I don't, you know, I want to go out for football, and I just, you know, there's nobody to, like, help me with it. And they have a great mom, a loving mom, a dedicated mom, but she never played football. And what they're doing is they're identifying, like, in their mind, they're like, man, if, I had, if my dad was around... That would really make a difference, you know? If my big brother, who played football, paid some interest in me, that could, and they'll, they'll tell you in so many words, I feel alone. You'll hear it from older people whose kids aren't interacting with them or grandkids. You'll hear it from grandparents who are raising their grandchildren. They'll describe aloneness. I just don't know what I'm doing. I don't have the energy I used to have. I'm really nervous about this. I don't even get the technology thing, right? And they'll describe I'm carrying this burden. I don't resent it. I'm, I'm not like this bitter, angry person. I just realize like it's me and that's not gonna change anytime soon. Aloneness. So we all have, we've all have had this. You don't, you know, it's not just single parenting. I'm just using those examples. But you can, you can propel that out a thousand different ways. And God would look and he, God actually identifies this as a basic human need. So when you go back to Genesis, and you're looking at the creation account, you'll hear, you'll hear kind of this cadence in, in Genesis chapter one and two. You hear God say something like, um, you know, God created the, the heavens and the earth, and, he'll, and, and then they'll say, and, and God said it was good. And that word good means complete or thorough or finished. There was nothing else that could be added to it. God created the fish of the sea, and it was good. Complete, thorough, finished, nothing could be added to it. He created the animals or the vegetation. He created, and you'll hear him say, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. There's one time, Genesis chapter two, verse 18, and he looks at Adam, and he had created Adam, and there was no Eve, and God looked at Adam, and he said, it is not good. It is not good that man is alone. Now, that, that sounds a little bit nuts, because Adam lived in paradise. Adam had everything. Every need met, we would think, right? He had, he had food. He had wealth. He had friends. Like, he's like, this is my friend, hungry, hungry hippo. We hang out, right? You know, so he had friends. He, he had a perfect relationship with God. Sin doesn't enter the world until Genesis chapter 3. So he has a perfect relationship with God. And yet God looked at Adam and said, he's alone. He needs another human being in his life to understand all the ways that I love and care for him. So God knows this about us. He knows that, that we, when we feel alone, we don't do well. He knows that we have needs and he knows that as he works in us, we work for him and we minister to other human beings. And a lot of the Bible is about relationships. It's about how do we express God's love and God's heart and God's mind to the people around us because it's not good for us to be alone. So that is God's mindset. His mindset is how can I serve you? And the reason why that question is so powerful, it's not like a tricky question or self-help question, it's a powerful question because it goes to what I'm feeling. When you say how can I serve you, what you're saying is, how can I alleviate your aloneness? How can I enter into this human experience with you? How can I make sure that you're not by yourself? And that's why it becomes so powerful. 
it, it is we will just open up and respond to that because it's like, man, you hit, you hit the nerve because that's what I was feeling. I didn't know to attach the word to it, but I was feeling that. So when I ask that question, it just lights me up, okay? So I want to I wanna give you some hyper-practical ways to alleviate aloneness in the people around you. And these, these will be, rela- it's, they're game changers, game changers, okay? And, and I, I, I promise you that next weekend, you will, you will come back to me and you'll be like, you were right. And I'm like, I've been telling you this for years, but I'm glad you finally listened to me, okay? So how do we alleviate aloneness, hyper-practical ways? By the way, this is also how you reflect the heart and mind of Christ to people, okay? Alleviating aloneness is just a practical way to say it. But we could also title this, how do you reflect the heart and mind of Christ? Okay, because it's what he's doing, all right? Number one, here we go. This one's really deep. You'll be blown away by my creativity with this one. Number one, recognize aloneness, huh? Wasn't that incredible? Incredible? Recognize aloneness. Now, I know that sounds like ridiculously simple, but let's talk about this a little bit. Recognize aloneness. When Christ looked at humanity before he stepped out of heaven and came to earth, Christmas, right? He recognized our isolation. So he looks down and he looks and he says, there's a relational break and they cannot do anything to solve it. I, there's a problem and I have to address this problem. This was his mindset, Philippians 2. It's his mindset, okay? I'm going to do something because they are isolated from me. So recognizing aloneness is how Jesus would think. And what do I, what do I mean by this? There are so many times in our life that people's aloneness presents itself as dysfunction. People's aloneness presents itself as dysfunction. And dysfunction, family dysfunction is so common that it has become normal, right? So there are 13.7 million adults in North America who are raising 22 million children by themselves, right, as single parents. Now, that is just the census numbers from 2010, so that means those are only numbers that show up in the court systems. I would propose that you should double that number when it comes to practically how a, a, an adult, they, they may, the parents may have legal custody, but there's another adult that's actually doing the raising. So there are tens of millions of adults who are raising children by themselves, who if you looked at them and said to them, how do you feel, if they had the word, they might say, I feel alone, okay? Dysfunction, family dysfunction, personal dysfunction has become the norm. And when, when broken things become the norm, we quit calling them broken. And when you quit calling them broken, you start addressing them the wrong way. So a rebellious teenager with a bad attitude is the expectation. So when I'm a teacher or I'm a coach or I'm a parent or I'm a neighbor, and I look at these kids, I think these kids are a bunch of punks. 
They got a bad attitude. They got their loud music. They don't have any respect for authority. Their pants are hanging down to their ankles. Right? I, these punk kids will start to look and say their problem is their behavior. Somebody ought to smack those kids upside their head. Somebody ought to, I tell you, when I was a kid, we, we didn't wear our pants around our ankles. They only held them down to our knees. Right? We'll start addressing the behavior as the problem. If I'm going to alleviate aloneness, the first thing I have to do is recognize aloneness. What's your problem? Why do you always have such a bad attitude? We'll never hear a kid look at us and say, you know what my problem is? Yeah, what's your problem? I don't have a dad. You're never going to hear that. I don't have a dad that said, knock it off. I don't have a dad that said, you're not going to behave this way. I don't have a dad that said, pull your pants up. I'm fatherless. I'm alone. I'm scared. And I don't have a dad to protect me, so I attach myself to these friends, and we all have bad attitudes. They're never going to say that to you. So if you recognize their behavior as the problem, and you don't see their aloneness, guess what? You're never going to address the issue in their life that's aching in their soul. Why do you, you're, you dress so scantily. I can't, girls today, they're so in must. What's your problem? They're never gonna look at you and say, I don't have a mom, my mom went nuts and like leaves me by myself and so I don't know what to do so I look for affection of my friends and other guys. I don't, they're never gonna say that to you, ever. That grumpy person you look beside at work and she always has a bad attitude. She's so hard to get along with and I tell you, she's never gonna look at you and say, yeah, I, I'm a single mom, I'm alone. I was up till 1.30 in the morning make a mobile of the solar system for my kids and I'm exhausted and yeah, they're never gonna come out and say that. When I look at that person with the mind of Christ, how can I serve you? It's a game changer. Nobody ever looked at God and said, hey God, my problem is is that I was born into sin and I rebel against you and I don't know what truth is. Could you reveal yourself to me? It's not there, that never happened. Jesus looked and identified the problem. See, and he identified it for what it was. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come into the world to give you a list of your bad behaviors and tell you what your, what your issue is. He came into the world that the world through him might be saved. He came to offer relationship. And his mindset was, how can I serve? Somebody has to change the relational dynamic, and Jesus said, I'll do it. So when I enter in, if, I, if I'm not identifying the issue, see, why, why is that person so insecure? Well, be, because they feel rejection, they feel alone. Why do they always talk? Because they feel this way. And if somebody pulls up beside that, could it alter the relational dynamic? Here's the second thing. If I want to alleviate or address someone's aloneness, I just need to recognize it, see between the lines, see what it is. Second thing is this. I need to walk to the person, not away from them. You need to walk to the person, not away from them. This, again, is Jesus. What did Jesus do? He recognized the problem, and then what did he do? Did he get a committee together? You know, we really got to think about how to reach the lost people. You know? He, he didn't analyze. He 
engaged the problem. He came out of heaven, took on the very appearance of a human being, and humbled himself and lived among us. This is what the word Emmanuel means, God with us. He entered the problem, right? He sympathized with the problem. It caused him to move. Jesus is a proactive God. He's not sitting on heaven keeping score and figuring out how quick he can get you frying in hell. He proactively stepped in and said, I I want to provide a way out. I'm gonna change the relational dynamic. So if I wanna alleviate aloneness, I go to a person, not away from them. Now that's hard sometimes because the person who's struggling with aloneness often will push you away. And one of the strongest ways that you can move to a person instead of away from the person, ready, is to sympathize with their aloneness. Now we all recognize this, but we don't think to do it to somebody else. You ever, uh, you ever have a terrible, terrible day and like somebody stole your truck and your girlfriend left you and somebody spilt your beer? You know, it's a country song. You ever just have one of those country song days, right? And, and, and you, you walk home or you go meet some friends and it's on your face. It's on your face. Heidi always tells me she never has to wonder what I'm thinking. She can see it on my face, right? You can just tell. And you ever walk into a situation like that and someone is sympathetic, a friend or your spouse or whoever, your parents, look at you and say, are you all right? No, I just had a bad day. What happened? Oh, my truck got stolen, my dog died, my beer spilled, my girlfriend ran off. And and they, they look at you and they say, man, that must be awful. What does it do to your soul? It must be awful. That must be so painful. Some of us who have lost our parents, when, when somebody else loses their parents, I know for me, I'm like, I'm like amazingly sympathetic. I'm like, man, that's gotta just tear you up. And a lot of times folks will say, well, you know, they were older. And I always say, I always will say, oh, that doesn't matter. My parents were older. Like, it just hurts. And I don't have, I don't have a magic bullet I don't have like this, but there's something about entering in. See, it's a, it's a sympathy. You know what Hebrews says? The book of Hebrews says we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. Christ looks at us and he says, you know what? Being a slave to sin, term out of Romans, being a slave to sin, it must be awful. It must be awful to be controlled by your addictions. It must be awful to to not know if there's hope after death. It must be awful to not be able to break free. And Christ sympathizes. He moves toward. He engages. When when I offer someone, uh, maybe it's a physical relief, right? I'm going to pay your bills. I'm going to put some food in your cover. I'm going to help you with the All we're doing is sympathizing in those moments. And it alleviates aloneness. It's like Christ looking and saying, how can I serve you? What can I do? How, is, there, is there a way that I can help? See, just skin on it. Now, let me say this a little step deeper. If you're a follower of Jesus here this weekend, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, the, the Bible says, say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook for this one. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're completely on the hook for this one, okay? Listen, this is the way it works. The Bible says that you have the Holy Spirit within you. And the Holy Spirit is what causes us to enact God's word in very specific ways, Okay? So how can I serve you, mind of Christ? So when I look at someone 
and I sympathize with their aloneness. I think, man, it must be so hard to be, yeah, single mom, you got three kids, you're a single dad, you're trying to go back to school and get a, I'm sympathizing. When I have an unusual sympathy toward an individual, like I, I feel for them in ways I've never felt for them before, and suddenly I get an idea. You know what? We should take dinner to them tonight. You know what? That must be so hard. She's running around by herself all that. You know what? Maybe I can take the kids to Little League because our kids are going to Little League anyways. I have an unusual sympathy, and then I have a specific idea of how to enter in or alleviate some of that aloneness. What that is called is that is called the prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit. That's a God thing. That's God looking at a child of his that he loves, relating and caring about their aloneness, then looking at another child of his that he loves and says, hey, would you go do this for me? Would you minister on my behalf? Don't just throw those things away. When you think, I ought to send a card, I ought to call, I ought to reach out, that is the Holy Spirit leading you. That's God hearing somebody's prayer and then interacting with you and saying, hey, would you, would you go do this for me? Okay. So when we enter in, we walk to a person, if I have the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ within me, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna start doing the things that Jesus would ask me to do. And, that, and that's how it would show up with skin on. That's the how can I serve you question. It cuts to that aloneness, and then it's gonna have some, it'll have some feet to it once in a while. And those aren't just emotions, and not just getting caught up in the minute. It's actually God, that's what God speaking to you sounds like. It doesn't sound like this deep, booming voice. It sounds like the Bible having feet to it, right? And we dial into that, and we love in those ways, and we're bringing the heart and the mind of Christ to a situation, and it changes the relational paradigm. I'm going to recognize aloneness. I'm going to walk to a person. Here's the last thing. We're going to simply be the church. Simply be the church. So let's look at what Christ did again, okay? He looks down, sees our relational isolation, right? He does something about it. He moves. He doesn't just think about it or simply. He moves, and he enters into it. He cares about what's going on with us. He lives on earth so that we can understand him. He dies a sinless death, never sinned, died an innocent death to provide salvation for us. After he rose again from the dead, he provides several things for us if we receive it. So our salvation, we can receive our salvation if we ask for it, repent of our sins. When we receive our salvation at that very moment, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the fancy way to say it. Or God comes and lives in our heart. It's the way that we normally will say it. And the other thing that happens that we don't think about as much is we become a part of the church. The church is not a man-made creation. So that you are not participating in organized religion right now. That's not, that's not what it is. The church is something that God created. The church means called out ones. People who respond to Christ's salvation are called out and indwelt with his Holy Spirit. We become a part of the church. So the church is a spiritual creation. It's the sum total of its individual parts. So individual believers gathering together, we become the church. And even the way we organize the church here at Grace, that's just us trying to do what the Bible says. uh, All of our instructions are written down for us, right? So that's just the church. God gives you the gift of the church. And Jesus looks at his church. He says, there's a few things I want you guys to do. It's very, very important to me. Uh, Number one, I want you to worship me and me alone. Got it. Number two, I want you to love the lost. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. So you exist for the world. You don't just exist for yourself. 
Got it. Number three, ready? I want you to have an unordinary, extraordinary, zealous love for each other. In fact, the hallmark of my church, Jesus says, my disciples will be known by their love for one another. I don't want the hallmark of the church to be politics, certainly. I don't want the hallmark of the church to be the preacher or the band. I want the hallmark of the church to be your extraordinary, zealous love for each other. So that when people outside the church see the church, they recognize, man, if I needed love, I would hang out with those people because they obviously, blatantly love each other. Now, what does that mean? On a very practical level, that means this, that every relational deficit that you have can be met through the unified investment of the local church. Every relational deficit that you have can be met through the unified investment of the local church. When we love each other, so I'm a single mom and I got a son or two. I'm not inadequate, I'm not dumb, I'm not incapable, but I'm not a guy and I know that. And I know that my sons need some investment from men because that relationship is missing, their dad checked out. Where could I get that investment? I bring them to church. There are hundreds, there are thousands of men at Grace Church who are godly, who are healthy, who are normal, who are parents. And they would look, the Bible would say that they would look at your son as their little brother. That's the Bible's description of how the church works, brothers and sisters. They would look and say, I have a little brother who has a need. He has a missing relationship. He's alone in that. I will take him in under my wing. That, that's why you get your teenagers involved in life groups. That, that's why you take your children to, to Power Outlet, because you can pick up those missing relationships. You can have surrogate people come in who will supply that need in their life. If you're a single dad, for instance, and you have a daughter, and your daughter comes home and she's like, can you French braid my hair? And you're like, what? <laughs> Is duct tape involved? Hey, you know, I don't know how to do that stuff. I have a daughter. I don't even know what she's talking about half the time. And so I don't know what to do, but you rec- you're not incapable. You're not dumb. You're not, none of that. You're just not a woman. There are thousands of women at Grace Church who will love and care for and invest in their little sister. They would care about that. So you get them in that environment where they can have that influence. They're not supplanting you. They're not even supplanting her mom. They're an asset. They're a friend. They're an ally, see? And the church, a big part of what we do is we give ourselves to each other in that way. The, the lonely older adult, the lonely younger adult, the lonely person in a marriage has got a rough marriage where they get support. This person over here, it goes on and on and on and on and on. In fact, the Bible says this is the way we're supposed to do it. Titus chapter three says older men, you gotta be teaching the younger men how to be godly. And older women, you gotta be teaching the younger women how to be godly. Some of you who didn't grow up with grandparents and you're missing that relational element, which is huge, 
Well, where would I find like surrogate grandparents? At church, there's all kinds of old people, really, really old people right here. <laughs> Right? I'm not, I'm not going to say any names, but I, you know, in this section. So it really, right? And they would look and say, I, w- I would love. I, you know what? I'll teach that. I'll teach my grandchild Sunday school class. I'll invest. Young moms, when, when you come and you've got little ones at home and you're like, I have not, I have not completed a sentence in a week. Right? I'm like losing my mind and all my clothes have goober on it. Okay, so I need a rest. Come to church. There are people who will hold your baby and love your baby, nursery workers who will literally pray over your child while you're in here. And you get to clear your head for a couple hours. What what is that? That's just people deciding to love each other. It's just the church. It's what we do. It's what Jesus said to do. It's all it is. Now fill in any relational deficit you want. See, I just use some examples. Fill in any one you want. And that relational deficit can be met by a church simply being who Jesus called us to be. See how it works? How can I serve you? Well, what, what are we serving? We're serving aloneness. Like we're interacting with this aloneness. Like I'm in isolation and I, I don't want to be, I can't stand to be. Even God says it's no good. Well, how can I serve you? Well, here's some ways. Recognize it for what it is. Move toward it. Be who God has called us out to be. And it's amazing how those relational dynamics will change, right? Now, let me say one last thing. I've been talking almost exclusively to those of us who would look at someone who is alone. What do we do about it? How do we serve them? I want to flip the coin here. What if you're the one experiencing aloneness? And so you, you look and say, man, Jeff, you've been describing me for the last 25 minutes. I'm like, okay, what do you do? Here's the deal. The most common reaction to aloneness is self-sufficiency. Most common reaction to aloneness is self-sufficiency. So this is what happens. I usually feel alone because someone let me down. And because someone let me down or a series of people let me down, my trust for people goes to the floor. I don't trust anybody. When I don't trust anybody, I handle everything myself, all right? I handle everything myself. So I'm a single parent, and I've been let down by people who are supposed to help me, and they don't, so I'm not, e- I'm not even gonna let you know that I have needs. I'm gonna come to church, I'm gonna slap a smile on my face, you know, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend everything's okay. I'm in a rough marriage. I reached, I got, I got let down by some people, so I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna, t- we're gonna pretend that we're happy. We're not gonna deal with the problem. Now, here's the thing. Self-sufficiency, I mean this in a very loving way, I'm just shooting straight with you, ready? Self-sufficiency is simply pride. That's all it is. It's pride. It's the exact same thing that keeps us from God. So when God looks, he's like, you, you've got a problem. What is it, sin? I'm not a sinner. Oh, yeah, you are. You know what? I'm going to come help you. I'm going to die on the cross for your sin. Well, that was really nice. It's great. If you receive my forgiveness, I'll forgive you of your sin. I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm a good person. I don't sin. I haven't killed anybody. Since I got out, I haven't killed anybody. 
You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. I go to church. I'm, I put some money in the basket when it goes by. I'm, I'm, I'm handling it. And God would look at you and say, you're so not. You're so not. And really, we, I don't have to press really hard for you to admit that that's true. I'm not a sinner. Did you ever tell a lie? Yeah. You ever cheat? Yeah. You ever steal? Yeah. You ever have a lustful thought? Yeah. Okay, you broke four of the Ten Commandments. You're a sinner. <laughs> okay. What do we have to do to receive salvation? We have to humble ourselves. We have to receive We have to put aside our self-sufficiency. It's the path, literally, it's the path of salvation. Now, in relationships, what do I have to do to receive salvation relationally? Same thing. Is there anything I can do to help you? Actually, there is. Hey, are you doing okay? You know what? I'm actually going to give you an honest answer. No. Don't be surprised that freaks somebody out at first because we're used to lying to each other. No, I'm not doing okay. Can I help? Yeah. How? How can I serve you? So when we're feeling alone, remember this whole thing is about serving each other. So when we're feeling alone, we, we're desperate for somebody to come to us and say, how can I serve you? How can I alleviate your aloneness? But you gotta flip the coin too. Because when I'm the one struggling with aloneness, I have to serve other people by letting them know that I'm alone because guess what? We don't dial it in. I don't. I don't dial it in right? I don't want to impose. They're so busy. All of that is true. It doesn't mean they don't love you and don't want to serve you, right? You're, you're, you, got, you got your own kids. Well, of course I've got my own kids, but it doesn't mean I don't love yours. It doesn't mean that we can't come along beside you more. It doesn't mean that we can't pitch in, and maybe I can't do it all by myself. Good thing I've got thousands of people at the church, but guys, listen, sometimes you have to make your need known. And you never feel more isolated than when, when you feel like people are just walking by you. And so you have to raise your hand, you have to serve other people and say, actually, I need the help. Actually, my son's not doing well, could you, see? And when we start serving each other that way, the relational dynamics change dramatically. Right? And it's amazing how the family will alter, how the friendships will alter, and it plays on up through community and, and all the rest, right? All of that is the mindset of Christ. It's, it's simply taking Jesus' mindset and putting real skin on it and letting it play out in real time. And it alters all the dynamics, it changes, and it, it gives us, it meets the needs that we're longing to have met. All right, they ask the band to come out as they settle in. What I want to encourage you to do is, is own this on a personal level. Remember, there's no one plus one equals two when it comes to family. It's all, Christ, here I am. Would you change me, alter me? I volunteer, okay? So here's what I want to encourage you to do. As, as, as we pray and sing and think, I encourage you to, to say, God, would you show me where people in my life are experiencing aloneness and how I can jump in and be a part of that, okay? Also, Christ, would you show me where I am being self-sufficient? 
where I'm not receiving from you and where I'm not receiving from the people around you. Guys, let's just take a few minutes to do that. Let's just be still, right? And and let's, you, you don't get time during the week to sit and think. You don't get time during the week to sit and reflect. We're, we're too busy, right? So Chili's is gonna be open in 15 minutes. Don't worry about it. Let's be still. Let's spend some time with God and actually give him the freedom to renew our minds and transform our hearts.